0: Hi, this is Krista, host of Living the Dream podcast and entrepreneur, as well as just a media mogul. And you're listening to Stories of the Magic podcast with your friend and mine, the wonderful Randy Crane. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more, right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane.
1: Welcome to Episode 107 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to Stories of the Magic, we are a positive and story-filled Disney podcast offering stories from cast members, Imagineers, artists, actors, and more, including guests, promoting a mutual love of Disney, celebrating and preserving the Disney magic and legacy, and inspiring people to live their dreams just as Walt Disney did. If that appeals to you or piques your curiosity, you're definitely in the right place, and I am glad you're here. Thank you for being with me and coming back after the kind of long hiatus that I had. It wasn't terribly long, I suppose, but it's been a little over a month since the last episode, so I appreciate you being here and downloading and listening to this episode. In it, we take a bit of a different turn as I interview Lynn Testa, creator of touringplans.com. He has spent more time and mental energy than anyone I know, making visiting the Disney parks a more enjoyable experience, and he's done it through research, a sound analysis, and a great team. Now in this episode, Len talks about his graduate thesis project that became Touring Plans, whether going to the parks is still fun or if it just feels like work now, staying at six hotels in five days recently using the Magic Kingdom for that graduate project, why he chose it and what makes it unique, something interesting about the most recent rewrite of the Touring Plan software, how they deal with the introduction of something major that's added to a park, like World of Color, New Fantasyland, and so on, and what the plan is for Star Wars land, walking down the streets of America at Disney's Hollywood Studios recently, some crowd calendar issues in late 2015, what they learned and what they're doing to address it, You'll be impressed and amazed. Using Amazon's cloud computing for creating and optimizing plans. What they've learned along the way of creating 10 million optimized touring plans. A feature request Lynn has said no to for years, but now is working on and why. My experience using the optimizer and why Lynn added it. Epcot first aid, that's a fun story. Some observations they've made from many tens of thousands of Walt Disney World surveys. What surprises him about the way people answer survey questions? A very cool and exciting use of the least expensive ticket calculator tool outside the theme parks. It's actually in the medical field. What inspires him? And shameless plug time. This episode's going to go a little bit long because the length of the interview was such that it was not quite long enough to cut into two parts. So we're just going to do this as a single episode interview. Now a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. listen,
2: listen. Hey, hey, Skywalkers. This is Richard. And over here is my sweetie wife,
0: Sarah.
1: You can call me Jedi Tink.
0: And we are Skywalking, skywalking Through Neverland. Neverland.
2: Jimmy Mack here. When you wish upon a podcast, wish upon this podcast. These guys are awesome. (laughs) We are a fan-focused podcast that covers Star Wars, Disney, pop culture, and their fandom communities.
1: The stuff that surrounds us, penetrates us, and binds us all together as instantaneous friends. What do you know? We showcase what people are doing in the world of fandom and talk to those who are involved firsthand in the universes that we love. This is Margaret Carey, Tinkerbell.
0: This is Jeremy Bullock, Boba Fett from Star Wars. This is Steve Sansweet from Rancho Obi-Wan.
1: Hey, it's James Earl Taylor, the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I happen to be skywalking through Neverland right and now. I'm and I'm skywalking through Neverland. Neverland. And I Neverland. through Neverland. I've always
0: hated space travel. Yeah.
1: <laughs> skywalking through Neverland is the ultimate expression of fandom. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and... And our website, skywalkingthroughneverland.com. And remember, Neverland on Alderaan.
0: (laughs) And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic.
1: Have you ever visited a Disney theme park, waited in line, and thought, these lines are really long, there's got to be a better way to do this? Did you then devote your graduate thesis project to solving that problem? You may not have, though it totally sounds like something I would do if I knew how, but my guest today did exactly that. We'll get to that story during the interview, so let me tell you a bit about him first. Lynn Testa is the co-author of The Unofficial Guides to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, the Disney Cruise Line, and British theme parks. He's also a contributor to The Unofficial Guide to Las Vegas. He's the lead researcher for touringplans.com and the book content, though he says most of his time there is spent trying to keep up with the team. When he's not doing that, he's one of the co-hosts of the WDW Today podcast, specifically now in the listener questions with Lynn segment, and the host of the Disney Dish with Jim Hill podcast. With all of that, I'm amazed he had time for this interview at all, so let's not delay any longer. Len, welcome to Stories of the Magic.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, Randy. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Uh,
1: Now, I do want to talk just a little bit about the graduate thesis. I know you've told that story many times before, and I'm going to link to some other podcasts in the show notes where you tell the whole story. But would you mind just telling the short version
2: for my audience? Yeah, so the short version was um, I was finishing up my undergraduate degree in computer science. And I went uh, to Walt Disney World with my twin sister. We had a thing where we um, we would go every year for our birthday. Huge Disney fans, and uh, we stood in line for like two hours to see the Great Movie Ride. And I I remember, you know, right before the heat stroke set in, um, (laughs) that there's got to be a better way to do this. So I went back to my graduate school advisors, um, and I said, you know, is it possible to get to write a computer program that figures out um, the way you, the order in which you should visit the rides to minimize your weight in line. So they sent me off to an actual library. Remember when, when people went to libraries? Oh, it,
1: yeah. I, I, used to go all the time. Do they still have those?
2: <laughs> still, still exist. Yeah. Um, so they sent me off to the library where I actually looked up, um, you know, research papers on microfiche instead of the internet. And, uh, didn't, I found the, the proper name for the problem. It's called the, uh, the time dependent traveling salesman problem. And that became my research topic, and it turned out to be really, really complicated. But uh, but it, it was a great research topic. I got to go to Disney World as part of my graduate school.
1: Well, not many people can say that. I know.
2: I, know. I, I used to go to Disneyland during my
1: undergraduate and graduate school, but it wasn't for the sake of getting my degree. It was just a place to go study. <laughs> <laughs> and, now, and now it's my job. Right. Yeah. You know, with it being your job now – it, I mean, like, I know you still have to go a lot and you're analyzing wait times and crowd flow patterns, how mm-hmm. guests experience the park and all that. Do you still enjoy the parks or is it, can it all work now?
2: Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it, is, it is all work. I mean, you can never turn it off. Um, I always joke with uh, with Laurel, uh, my partner, that, uh, that one day we're going to go and just have a vacation there. Like, if, if we're having an especially good day at the parks, it's like, yeah, you know, we should come here and just vacation. <laughs> <laughs> just like, not it. But it would never happen, right? I mean… Uh, the, the work instinct would kick in and, and you're always evaluating everything every meal that you eat you know you're thinking like you know, how can you know, do I need to add something to the book about this and every time you visit a hotel room and every time you go on a ride it's all it's all it's all work it's fine though I mean it's you know it's not bad
1: well yeah I mean I guess if you're gonna have something that consumes your
2: brain with work might as well be Disney right yeah, it's true Did, uh, so this last weekend uh, I went I went I was just there a couple days ago and I, we ended up staying at uh, six hotels in five days. Because uh, we were testing budget hotels, like fifty dollars and under, and I said six hotels in five days because one of them wasn't wasn't one that I, I actually decided to stay at for one night, so I had to make an emergency.
1: Ah, uh, okay. I was gonna say, did you like check out in the middle of the night? How'd you do that? That makes sense. okay. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> didn't didn't even spend the night. Didn't even. Wow. It was that night. bad, huh? It happens. Yeah. Well, it wasn't terrible. It was um, it was a nights in Main Gate on one ninety two and. We had, we thought it was a two or three star hotel. It was perfectly, it was, it was clean enough. It was $34 a night with tax. The staff was friendly. Um, it just wasn't quite up to the standards that would allow us to put it in the book. Uh, and once I knew that, there was no point in staying there.
1: Gotcha. So, okay. And so you then did have another one on the list you could go to uh, in case you needed to. So it was, you weren't just pulling one out of your hat to go
2: for number six. I I, I did actually. Actually, <laughs> you did, really. I was, uh, Laurel, uh, as soon as we pulled up to the Knights Inn Main Gate, uh, we kind of figured what might happen, and Laurel started calling around to get us a hotel room. So literally, before I I think before I was actually checking, checking oh, wow. we the like hotel. <laughs> nice. Yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> now, with that traveling salesman problem, when you were doing that for your graduate thesis, you didn't do
2: all of the Magic Kingdom or all of Walt Disney World, did you? We did. Um, we did all of the Magic okay. Kingdom and kind of kind of focused on that, but the rest of the world no, the thing we had figured was that the um, the approach that we would use for one park we could we could replicate for everything else. And the Magic Kingdom was the biggest and most popular. It also had some some really interesting, unique uh, uh, things about it. So we figured if we could solve that one, then we would solve be able to solve everything. Like uh, one of the interesting things about the Magic Kingdom is you can get on a ride and end up in a completely different place, and that's the Walt Disney World Railroad. Right. So uh and that is uh that's that doesn't happen um uh, in Epcot except for the friendship boats, and it doesn't happen at all in uh the studios. In the animal kingdom you can sort of work around it with a wildlife express train, but um but Epcot and the Magic Kingdom are really the only two places that you can do it. The other interesting thing about the Magic Kingdom is that they had the Diamond Horseshoe Saloon Review, which used to do a show and serve lunch at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was one of those really rare rare places where you could sort of do two things at once, and we'd actually mentioned in the book that you could do these things. So we had to support it in the software. So it became this really interesting thing where we had to write code for the optimizer that know that knew it was a a restaurant and an attraction, and you could do both things at the same time. Hmm. And so there's yeah, there's little stuff like that. It, it was it was complicated, but uh, but fortunately we we figured out you know simpler ways to do it. We've written, I've rewritten the software like two or three times since graduate school to speed it up and simplify all the backend stuff. The, uh, the interesting thing is now, um, the last revision, the last big revision that we did, um, we use the exact same code for every theme park in the world. So we support FastPass, FastPass Plus, Universal Express, um, all of the weird ride reservation systems that they use in Europe, they're all supported. The same way internally. Um, so, uh, the thing that we wrote, we could actually use for, for any theme park.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. So, do you have? I know you do the touring plans for Walt Disney World and Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Do you also do them for Universal right now? Yeah,
2: for Universal Florida. Um, we're going to support Universal California, Universal Hollywood um, later on this year. And then uh, we may do either Tokyo, uh, Tokyo Disneyland or Disneyland Paris later on.
1: Gotcha. Do you plan to expand that to any other?
2: Of the non-Disney parks, yeah, we've looked at it. Um, Alton Towers is pretty is pretty big in Europe. It's it gets a couple million visitors a year. Um, not nothing on the same scale as the United States, though. Um, like like I think they'll I think they get around four million people a year, which is half of what Universal Orlando gets at, at any one of its parks. Um, hmm.
0: Wow. Yeah, so, you
2: know, in terms of the market, it's not it's not quite the same, but um, but still, it's uh, Alton Towers is the most Disney-like of of the theme parks in, uh, in Europe. So if we were going to do something, we'd probably look at that or like Thorpe or Legoland, something like that.
1: Gotcha. Not Tivoli gardens. Yeah. Hey, I've never been to Tivoli gardens. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. It seems like it would be the most Disney like theme park, but it's true. It's true. <laughs> Uh, how do you deal with the challenges of the introduction of something major to the parks, like the new fantasy land or Cars Land or something like that, where you're bringing in something that's never been there before, but you don't have a couple of months to connect to collect data before you can add it to your touring plans?
2: You know, it's a, it's interesting. We we take educated guesses about what might happen. So for something like, um, well, let's, let's take the example of Rivers of Light that's coming up at the Animal Kingdom, right? Um, okay. What we look for is we look for parallels in the past um that are something similar. And in this case we're using uh world of color at DCA as a proxy because they're roughly similar in that you had parks that uh weren't super popular, um, didn't have a whole lot of nighttime stuff going on, and then they get this new nighttime thing by itself in, in the context of a larger construction project in in in, in Oakadim's case it's Pandora. Um mm-hmm. but you get sort of the world of color thing is the or or Rivers of Light, as a sort of a standalone project. So we're using that as a guide. And we're saying, you know, well, what, by what percent did did crowds increase when World of Color was introduced into DCA? And we'll use sort of the same thing. And then we'll, we'll do plus or minus. We'll typically model three scenarios. We'll be like, let's, and let, let's give an example. Suppose um, World of Color increased DCA's attendance by 15%. We might go a little low and say, what happens if it's 10% at Animal Kingdom? We might go a little high and say, what if it's 20% of the Animal Kingdom? And, and and work that way. We we think that there's a little bit more room for Animal Kingdom to grow than like the Magic Kingdom. The Magic Kingdom, even when it got new fantasy land, it only grew uh, low single-digit percentages a year. So there's not a lot that the Magic Kingdom can do to 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 grow. The Animal Kingdom actually could could see it itself boosted up by a million or you know, a million and a half people a year with the new stuff. Okay.
1: What are your plans for Star Wars Land? Do you, do you have some kind of analog in mind for that already? So
2: the best thing we could come up with is uh, Radiator Springs at DCA, which which did, or you know the Harry Potter stuff at, at the Universal Parks. And both of those ranged from you know 10 or 15 percent up to 30 percent. My sense is that uh, Star Wars Land will sort of be towards the top end of that if it opens all at once. Um, so in other words, if they if they, if if one day all of Star Wars Land Star Wars land is closed and then one day it's open. Um, I think that you'll see something like the Harry Potter stuff. If they sort of open up, you know, a few, a few shops at a time or something like that, uh, you, may, you may get a more gradual uh, increase. But, but Disney is so good at the publicity and marketing stuff that, um, that I would expect that to be huge. Especially now that uh, Hollywood Studios is the, the fourth most visited park, it's the least visited theme park in Disney World. And that's that's only going to continue to to get worse for the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, it seems like right now they've taken out what a third to half of what you could do for the construction of Toy Story Land and Star Wars Land. Yeah, and
2: after uh, after April second, it'll be you know even more. They'll get rid of Lights, Action. They'll get rid of Honey, I Shrink because Movie Set Adventure. Um, Streets of America will be completely closed. It was interesting though, they they're already focusing so much of the entertainment in the park on stuff that will be here past April. So I was I was in the park on Saturday with Jim Hale. We were recording our own show. And we were walking down the streets of America. And you can actually hear it in the show when I post it. I count the number of people that I can see and I think it's like 11. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, think about that. I mean, it's it's, it's 6 p.m. It's dinner time in a major theme park in, in Walt Disney World and I can count all of the people that I can see. Wow. That was, was kind of crazy. And they, but it's just because there's, there's nothing to do back there, though. The last Lights Motor Action Show had closed. Um, all the fast passes were gone for Toy Story Mania for the day. You know, Muppet was getting was pulling nobody in. Uh, Pizza Planet was closed, so there's no there's just no reason for people to be back there other than you know Mama Melrose. So, I mean, it, I, I could count the people <laughs> coming in and out. Funny. <laughs> Man, that's really something. It was, it was a little creepy. It was uh, it was strange. Yeah,
1: did we miss something? And so <laughs> exactly. everybody's it's
2: like, gone. Did we hear an aerated siren? The guy would have heard an aerated siren, right? We, we would have heard that, right? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> you almost want to ask the people walking around, do you know something we don't? <laughs> yeah, if everyone
2: was like walking away, you know, would be like, <laughs> right. oh, the zombie apocalypse is upon us. How about that? Funny. Yes. Um, now, I remember.
1: Even though I wasn't at Walt Disney World during this time, I remember hearing you guys talk about it on w d w Today and things like that that there were some crowd calendar issues in September, October, and November of 2015 oh,
2: yeah. um, What did that teach you, and what are you doing to kind of address that? homin oh, so this was crazy so september September October, November um are traditionally very slow times of the year, right and especially September because you've just come off of essentially three months where if you had kids. And they weren't in school. That was the perfect time to take them, right? It's uh, no one's missing any tests. Um, you've got plenty of time. You know, you can could, you can could, you could pick any one of a number of weeks to go, uh, and it would be fine. So September, you know, by that time everyone's back in school. Um, it's um, it should be among the slowest times of the year, and it had been. So we we when we look at our forecasts, when we were looking at our forecasts in August, we were like, okay, you know, after Labor Day are going to slow down. It'll be slow through, you know, through November. There's there's a couple of holidays, right? You have got Columbus Day in October. You've got Veterans Day and uh, Jersey Week in November. And then you know, but it, it should be relatively slow for you know, 60 to 75 days. And then it wasn't. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we were getting reports. So first of all, we we, saw, we thought something was strange the second week of September when we were, had started to predict on our one to ten scale of of, of crowd calendars. We had started to see like fives and sixes where it should have been ones, and then there were days where the wait times uh, at the rides of the Magic Kingdom were just like they were over the summer, like you know, a hundred minute wait at at Space Mountain on a random Tuesday in September. And you're and you know we're looking at each other like, who who are these people that are in the parks, right? Because if they're kids, the kids are in school. Um, mm-hmm. And so we started looking, and there were there were a couple of things that we. Um, couple couple of holiday things we missed. I a uh, couple there were a couple of Jewish holidays. I think it was Rosh Hashanah was on a Monday in 2015, which led to a three day weekend for New York, New Jersey public schools. Um, and that that was a significant uh, change for us. Um, but we we didn't know what was happening for like for for like 75 days. We were looking at these calendars. We were looking at the previous years, and it was just a huge Change in the number of people. In fact, we, we knew that Disney was also surprised because, you know, you'll, you'll occasionally see sites like w, WDW Magic say, hey, uh, the Magic Kingdom has extended hours, you know, every night this week or, or today, right. right? Today the park uh, was supposed to close at 11, but it's closing at midnight now, so an extra hour. But they were doing that like, you know, every other day. And we were hearing from cast members who worked in the Magic Kingdom that they were getting calls to come in. On their days off, or to stay later, like you know, there's, there, there, their supervisor would be calling them and saying, "Hey, I know you're, you're supposed to work till you know four o'clock tonight. It'd be great if you could stay till midnight."
0: Whoa. With yeah,
2: <laughs> just like you know, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't plenty of working double shifts, but you know, stuff like that. And yeah, Disney was willing to pay overtime rates. Yeah, right. It was you know, shift schedules around or whatever, but it was you know, it was, yeah. it was these sorts of things where it was like, we we know we're understaffed. We're going to keep the park open, and now we need people to actually be in the. You know, to run the rides, so we we went back and and started looking at everything. We were like, we looked at everything from the historical trends that we had on on hotels and park hours and things like that. And those are normally pretty good indicators, but what we what we were not looking at, uh, what we didn't have a really good grasp on, we're, we're, it was in a couple of areas. One is um, we think the uh, the U.S. economy finally improved to a point where People felt comfortable taking trips that they had not planned for a year. Like they made more spur of the moment or, you know, let's go to a couple week, um, trips. And so that's a combination of things like lower airfare, cheaper gas, um, and, you know, everyone feeling more secure about their jobs in the economy. Um, and we, <sighs> had, we did not have economic trends data in the models that we use for the predictions. So starting around, November, we started gathering um, data around that. And it it works like this. So uh, let's say that you and I are in the park, Randy, and we walk up to Space Mountain, and it's 6.32 p.m., and we notice that the wait is 60 minutes. Okay? Okay. When we store that 60-minute wait time in our database, we store something like 200 other pieces of data along with that 60-minute time. And it's everything from you know, whether the Magic Kingdom had morning extra ma- magic hours today or evening extra magic hours to what the schedule is like, you know, plus or minus two days on either side of today to things like uh, what we've added now are things like the consumer price index, not only for the United States, but also for the South and then the Southeast and then for Florida specifically. And we're looking at things like, you know, the trend in gas prices now and a, and a huge other number of things. Um, so what we really did is, is once, we, once we sort of looked at these, these data, we, we spent November, December, and all of January, and i am actually still working on it today, redoing the way that we do the models, um, going back to essentially first principles and rethinking everything we did about it. So um, going park by park, but we're, we're essentially going back and saying, if we had to do, if we had to build a model again from the ground up, how would we build it? And that's where we're at now. So that's just essentially taking the last three and a half months of my time.
1: Wow. Okay. So, and you've got that good reference point to use. So, as you build these new models, I'm assuming you can run them for what you pro- would project to happen in September, October, and or November, and see if the models match what actually happened with the historical data. And that's kind of your proving ground. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Exactly. So we have a couple of we have a couple of interesting questions. So what so what we'll do is we'll we'll give the model that we're building all of the data that we've ever collected up until August 31st of 2015. And then we'll say, knowing what you know about all of this up until August 31st of 2015, how would you have done predicting September, October, and November? So just just for reference, uh, at the Animal Kingdom uh, in September, October, and November of last year, we were plus or minus 10.7 minutes on our predictions. So if we said on average that the weights were going to be 50 minutes, it was somewhere between 40 and 60. And that's not great. And it's, it's I mean it's it's not great. We were able to get now uh, an error of just under nine minutes, so almost a twenty percent improvement in it. The uh, the nine minutes, most of the nine minute difference, we think, is related to weather. So short term weather changes. So things like if it's if it's raining, no one goes to the park in the morning, or if it happens to be unseasonably cold in November, no one's going to go on Collie River Rapids. Right. So we think most of that is at but then it opens up another question, and this is sort of the, the, the fundamental thing that we're researching: is, is what is the limit of our accuracy of our models? Like, we don't think we we could ever be plus or minus zero minutes, simply because at the end of the day, it's uh, there's some crowd things that we can't predict. And let's face it; I mean, there are teenagers that are setting these wait times, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, there there are there are limits to Disney's own accuracy, right? And there's noise in the. So we're at right now we're at like plus or minus let's call it nine minutes. We think we can get that down to like plus or minus seven if we include weather, maybe six. Okay. But I think that that might be the limit. But it's another interesting question as to where we're at. And then you know for other parks like the Magic Kingdom or Epcot, it gets a little bit harder, or a little bit easier, depending on whether there are more or less outdoor rides and things like that. But but that's where we're at now. But just a, essentially going back to, to square one and saying if we were to rebuild a model from the ground up. How would we do it? So we're, we're looking at this now. We brought in two PhD data scientists to look at it. We um, we talked to the guys. who. Do you know what uh, uh, Kaggle is? K-A-G-G-L-E? I've heard of it. I don't know a lot about it, but I have heard of it. All right. So for the listeners, uh, it started like this. Uh, a few years ago, Netflix, the uh, the streaming service, offered a prize of $100,000 to uh, anyone who could improve the accuracy of their recommendation engine by more than 10%, by 10% or more. Um, and they post it on a website called Kaggle. And you can go on there and see a lot of other um, uh, similar competitions. Here's some data. Improve the prediction by X percent, and you win a prize. Um, so we've actually talked to the guys um, uh, who have won many of those competitions about this particular problem. Um, we've even asked them to consult on it. So far, we haven't found anything revolutionary, nothing, uh, nothing that we didn't already know about it. But... We've gone out to the industry and asked as many smart people as we could about this. What, right? It's going to be interesting to see where we end up. I think we've probably got another 60 days of work on it, but uh, but hopefully by spring break we'll be uh, uh we we'll able to test the new models in the park and see what happens. Okay. It's crazy though. I mean, it's it's not even it's not programming right? it's more it's more science based or uh, statistics based stuff. But super interesting.
1: Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Uh, and you'd said you've rebuilt the software a couple of times. Is this now another? rebuild or is this functioning in a different
2: way than that it's completely different software so it's um it's written from the ground up literally starting with nothing and then we've re- been rebuilding uh rebuilding it so we'll see what happens on it it uh the interesting thing about it is to we, we want to get to the point where we can make predictions um every day for 365 days in advance and the amount of computing power that has to happen that we have that we need to do that is actually pretty good uh, pretty big because we're making like New predictions for like 100 different attractions 365 days in advance and the analysis that goes into that is is huge i actually couldn't put all the computers in my house so we're, we're using amazon's cloud for that but uh but anyway interesting stuff
1: yeah i remember reading an interview that you had done i think it was with wired or something like that where you talked about uh, that part of it
2: a little bit yes yeah, so we use um for the optimizer uh, the thing that uh, will create a, an optimized touring plan for you, all of that runs on Amazon's cloud, and the interesting thing about it is, it scales up and down automatically depending on the kind of demand that you have. So, like you know, two o'clock in the afternoon of Christmas Day or Christmas week, we probably had, um, we were getting you know many thousands of, of uh, touring plan requests an hour, but you know, at three o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning, we're getting almost none. So there's no point in us. Buying computer time when we don't need it. So Amazon lets us do that. The, uh, the cool thing about that though was, um, when we were originally building the software, we wanted to test the scaling feature. So what we did is we, we wrote another set of programs that, that sent in, um, touring plans, like touring plan requests, optimization requests, as if 40,000 individual families were in the parks. So we're like, could we, could we handle optimizing touring plans? For 40,000 families in the parks, all at the same time, and in order to do that, it was actually so much computing power. I had to ask Amazon for special permission to do it. And the cool thing was, is like there's there's this huge form to fill out, right, you to do it. And you get to the end where you have to explain what you're doing. So I explained that I'm, um, you know, this is what we're doing for Disney theme parks, you know, and it optimizes your weight in line, etc. They wrote back, they're like, yeah, this is cool. That was it. <laughs> and they did it, and it and it worked. It worked. I mean, it worked perfectly. It was, it was because we had, we had gotten it up to like you know ten thousand, and and we figured the scaling was going to work, and it did. But the uh, the funny, it was the funniest thing. Like you tell people what you're working on, and you can call up people, and I did this during my graduate school research too. You call up people and you say, yeah, you know, I'm looking at the same thing for Disney Disney Parks, and everyone understands the problem. You know, everyone everyone gets it. Yeah. When I was doing my graduate school stuff, every single person I asked for help responded. Which was kind of amazing, but right, everyone got it. Yeah, so the Amazon uh, Amazon guys are great, and they're all they're all super helpful. So, oh, that's great. <laughs> that's really fun too. That <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's cool. Everyone <laughs> understands the problem, and that's uh, I think that's kind of a blessing, right? Because you can you can explain it to people. Everyone gets it. Everyone understands the appeal, and everyone's you know willing to help out too. So, so that's really good. Yeah. Well, I think in part a lot of times people are willing
1: to help because they can get something out of it, and if you improve the model for waiting in line and how to most efficiently tour the parks, almost everybody's going to get a personal benefit out of that. Yeah.
2: Everyone can see themselves using it, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool.
1: Yeah. Now you were just talking about the optimized feature which is probably my favorite feature of the lines app and of the website and you told me in preparation for today that you just completed the 10 millionth computer optimized touring plan yeah. which is just
2: staggering. I know, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> 10 million.
2: Uh, what have you learned along the way? Ah, oh, you know, it's uh it's it's super interesting. We when I originally before I even wrote the software, I did this. I asked people to send me what they wanted to do. And I actually did 2,200 touring plans by hand. (sighs) 2,200 plans, it took months. Um, But what that gave us was an idea of the kinds of things that people were requesting. Um, So we were able to build a set of rules into certain things, you know, like um, things that people wanted to do in the morning, things that people wanted to do in the evening, and so on. So I'll give you an example. One um, One of the interesting things, that the optimizer would do if we let it is this. Let's say you want to see 20 attractions or 10 attractions in a day. Not a huge number, right? The average number of, the average number of uh, attractions that a typical person sees in a Disney park is 10. And so Disney, if you, if you, if you just walked into a park, you didn't know anything about touring plans, you were just there to have a good time you stayed all day, you'd see roughly 10 attractions. Um, if you're using a touring plan that averages like 22. But if you only wanted to see 10 attractions, the thing that the optimizer would do if we let it is this. It would probably put some attractions in the morning up until like 11 a.m., and then it would put most of the rest of them in the evening, okay? And it would give you this huge break in the middle of the day if we let it. Okay. And the reason is, is I mean, you've been to a Disney theme park, you know that between like 11 a.m. and, you know, 4 or 5 p.m. is the busiest part of the day, right? Right, right. So... The optimizer would normally look at this and say, look, you've, you've only got, you know, four or five hours of activity, four or five hours of ride here, but we've got 16 hours in the park, so I'm going to schedule these four or five hours of activity at the very beginning of the day and the very end of the day when there are the fewest number of people in the park, therefore the shortest lines, right? And that is a perfectly logical thing to do. People hate it, though, so we don't do it. <laughs> So people, people will look at it and say, well, this is, you know, this is strange. You know, why do I have this big, big, big break in the day? So what we'll do is we actually favor plans that are suboptimal, that don't save you every single minute in line, but that, um, front load a little, uh, a few more attractions in the morning. We actually make sure that you don't have really long breaks in the morning because it looks counterintuitive to
0: people. Right.
2: Stuff like that is, is very interesting. Yeah. Where, you know, people would prefer the suboptimal thing because it, you know, quote, looks right. Um, those are rules that we had to build in over time. The other thing is, is that we, and I didn't realize this was going to happen, but there are actually people who's, who have made careers out of creating touring plans for other people. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while, we'll, we'll go in and we'll look and we'll, uh, someone will send us a touring plan and say, can you take a look at this? Cause I don't, you know, something's wrong. And occasionally they, they discover a bug. But you know, we were doing this one time and, I was looking at this, you know, this the, the touring plans that this person had created, and and when they give me the touring plan, I can go in and see every plan that they've created. This person had like a thousand touring plans. I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> right, what, a thousand, right? I mean, I mean, I don't think I have a thousand, right? <laughs> right. And I'm looking at them, and they all have different names of, of families in them. Like, you know, what's going on here? And it turned out it was a it was somebody who had created a custom business of creating touring plans for as part of like a trip planning or a travel agency. Business that they were using the software to create custom itineraries for other people. So essentially, that was that was their job, built on this software. It was really interesting. Like this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was it was really neat. And they would you know they would mail them to these people. And people would use them and apparently be happy with it. So yeah, I tell you, I do that some for Disneyland. Oh, do you really? For people, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Go ahead and do it. Yeah, knock yourself out. It was uh, I didn't I didn't think it would happen, but there were, there were about twenty or twenty five people. Um, that have you know thriving little side careers doing uh, doing touring plans, but the uh, but it's really interesting to see. And of course, we get all kinds of uh, you know feature requests and stuff, and I, I keep a list of them on the board. Um, but I'm pretty happy with with how it works in general.
1: Great. So a lot of what you've learned isn't so much just about how the software works, but you've learned a lot about how human behavior works. It's
2: true. It's true. I mean, there are bugs in, in I'm sure there are bugs in the in the software. In fact, I'm working on one now. But we get at least as many questions that end up being more human insight than actual technical problems and that's that's super interesting and we we take what we learned from the uh, from the software and we put it in the touring plans for the book too
1: yeah you said you get a lot of feature requests is there any that you've gotten where you've thought either why in the world would somebody want that or
2: you've looked at it and said yeah that's just not gonna happen the biggest one um and and i said no to it for years was people who wanted to go back and forth between disneyland and dca like You know, I want to go, I want to start at Disneyland in the morning, then I want to go to DCA for lunch, then I want to go back to Disneyland for a few hours, then I want to go back to DCA to see World of Color, then I want to run over to Disneyland and catch, you know, the nighttime fireworks. And and I'm like, well, you know, it's great, we could totally do it, right? But the number of changes that we would need to make to the software to accommodate that, you know, is is pretty substantial, I get like five or six requests like that per year, right? So we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do it. The funny thing is, is we just started, um, we just did the unofficial guide to Washington, D.C. And if you think about, if you, this is the analogy that we're making. So Washington, D.C. is like Walt Disney World. Um, take a museum like the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. It's like a theme park. The rooms in the museum are like lands in the park. And the individual attractions are like the things you want to see in that particular gallery. <clears throat> then it kind of makes sense. Right. Because everything in Washington, D.C. is relatively um, uh, close together. At least a lot of things are around the mall. So mm-hmm. you could conceivably say, you know, OK, I'm uh, I'm going to go to Aaron's space um, for the morning. I'm going to go to American Indian for lunch, which I would totally do because it's got a great cafeteria and then come back to and space. And then maybe you run across the mall to natural history. You know, so it's like sort of this back and forth. Um I kind of see that now, so we're looking at changing the software to do that. Um, oh, that'd be super helpful for me, so it, it's, it's good to know. <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting, yeah, but this, uh, this this park-to-park-to-park thing, and we kind of did it a little bit with, um, with Diagon Alley and uh, Hogwarts Express. When Diagon Alley opened, you could go between uh, Universal Studios Florida and Islands of Adventure. Mm-hmm. So we actually had to come up with a way of doing that, and we did. So... Um, it's a little more complicated for Washington D.C. because uh, in D.C. we're going to support walking between attractions, but also taking the subway, um, the bus, or driving. So what's uh, known as a multimodal transportation problem. We'll see. What wow. Yeah, we'll see.
1: Yeah. Interesting. And you know, I got to tell you, I think that you know you'll be glad to hear this. You said that the typical Walt Disney World guest experiences ten attractions in a day. With the touring plans, you can generally, on average, do twenty-two. Mm-hmm. Last time I was there, sadly, was June of uh, 2013, but it was, like, the very end of June, beginning of July, and I remember in particular Magic Kingdom, my wife and I, in one day, did 27 attractions. Wow, that's great. And we called the day. At seven o'clock. <laughs> done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were having dinner at Be Our Guest. We'd actually got a walk up dinner reservation really? for Be Our Guest. Yeah, it was but it took about three tries of walking up, but we finally got one. And we're sitting there having dinner and said, You know what? Nothing we do after this <laughs> is going to make the day any better. This is fine. We're good. And so we called it at a seven o'clock dinner reservation at the end of the day. And we had done twenty seven things that day. Oh, that's
2: fantastic. Good, good, good. And I can tell you, without the optimizer, we wouldn't have been able to do it. Oh, good. Did you use the optimizer in the park as you were going
1: along? Yeah. I love that. Because my wife is not big on real strong structure. Mm -hmm. So it was a little bit of a challenge the first time we went to get her to agree to use the touring plans. And that lasted for one day. Yeah. And actually not even one day, like half of a day. And then she realized how much fun we were having and how easy it was, and didn't really feel boxed into things. And so we were good with that. And then by the next time the optimizer was in place, so with that we would just we'd do a couple of things and reoptimize. Oh hey look, we're gonna go do this next. And occasionally we would be near something and say we want to do that, so I would just add it in real yeah. quick, and then mark it done and reoptimize, so that way I could keep track of everything we'd done for the day.
2: funny uh, you mentioned the reoptimization thing. I actually added that feature because I was bringing my daughter to the parks. And, you know, she would she would want to go get an ice cream or something or, you know, she'd want to reride ride haunted mansion after being going on it and, you know, wasn't part of the plan. So I actually added the the optimize button to it specifically for uh scenarios that you you didn't expect. It was it was actually kinda of neat. I uh the the examples I give in the book, like, you know, you can use this if and then I list a bunch of things, all of those things happened to me. And the part <laughs> really? that's like, oh, by the way. Yeah, there's this one time where uh um Ken and I were in line for a Grand Fiesta tour, right? And she was young. She was like eight or nine. Um, And she tried to hop up on the railing to sit. And instead of hopping up on the railing, she fell forward and hit the bridge of her nose on the railing in front of her. And it instantly swelled up, right? So like I thought, oh my God, she's broken her nose. We ended up going to Epcot um, first aid. uh, And she ended up being fine. She just ended up with a bruise, a bruised nose. Luckily, nothing broken. but. but it's, it, it's, it was, it was that, that, you know, put us off for like, you know, two hours in the, uh, in the day. And I was like, well, if I had a, a written plan, if I had a paper plan, this would have been completely useless. But, um, you know, but if I, if I could just, you know, start from this point forward, right. And say, you know, no matter what just happened, if I could just start from this point forward and, and, and figure out what to do for the rest of the day. That'd be great. And that's where the button came from. Oh, Wow.
1: That's a really good place for it. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't have any touring plans with Visit First Aid for I, two hours? I, in it was them? the first time I've actually been to Disney First Aid. Really? And it was,
2: it was super cool. Have you ever been? I've been to the one at Disneyland, yeah. You did, uh, so you should go to the one in, in World the next time you The thing that impressed me the most was they've got different shaped Band-Aids, more than you would ever see in your entire life, like re- literally designed to fit between any two pieces of the human body. <laughs> so a lot of them, are, you know, people wearing flip flops, you know, and whatnot, uh-huh. and so, so, but they've got special band-aids that are designed to fit between your toes and stay secure. And but they pull it out on this board like it's a science fair project. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, I'm telling you, it's got to be like like three dozen different shaped band-aids, and I'm looking at this going, I'm like, this is, you know, I, I'm glad Hannah's fine. This is the most interesting band-aid display I've ever seen in my entire life. And, and they're, you know, they're H-shaped or they're butterfly-shaped or they're X-shaped or they're T-shaped. I mean, it's, wow, this is super impressive. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And everyone was really nice. It was great. It was a good visit. So That's great. I'm going to actually be at
1: Disneyland tomorrow, and I just feel like walking in and saying, do you have a Band-Aid display I can see? <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I don't know about Disneyland, but I know Epcot definitely had it. And then uh, they uh, they also had, uh, in several different languages, a poster that um, explained the risks of dehydration. And that was also super impressive. Hmm. Good for them. Yeah, it was good.
1: Now, over the years, I know that you guys, your team has analyzed a lot of data. I think you had told me 97,000 restaurant surveys, many thousands of resort surveys, and, and on and on. First of all, at what point do you have, like, is there a certain point where, an observation becomes statistically significant to
2: you, like we've got this many people yeah. that say this. So 97,000 was actually last year, 2015. Oh wow, it was super. Yeah, right. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, just just for just for reference, we got uh, you mentioned be our guest. We got 3,005 uh, surveys for be our guest uh, last year. Okay. So when you think about we think about touring plans, we've and and, and the unofficial guide, um, touring plans between the website. The blog and the app gets somewhere around somewhere between 10 and 15 million visitors a year. The, um, the book sells hundreds of thousands of copies um, a year. And all of those people send us surveys. So last year we got 97,000 uh, dining responses. Again, 3,000 of them might be our guest. But the interesting thing is that uh, so typically we think there's somewhere around 30, 35 survey, survey responses are needed to sort of get a, a good statistical feel for, uh, for a particular Restaurant. the The interesting thing is that we got that for every food cart in Walt Disney World with 97,000 surveys. So we can actually tell you which popcorn cart or churro cart in the park is the best one. And, and I, I mentioned this in, in the next edition of the book. The Frontierland churro cart is like 94% thumbs up. You know, I mean? and, <laughs> and that one we actually got uh, almost 200 uh, individual um, surveys on it. So people really, really like that one. But yeah, we can. Uh, like we can rate every food and wine booth. We can rate you know, with ninety seven thousand servers, you can rate pretty much everything.
1: Yeah. So it's been a while since I've taken a statistics class, but you're well into the ninety nine percent confidence interval there, aren't oh, you? Oh yeah. So
2: we can uh so the our 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 margin of error, so our confidence interval on that is probably like plus or minus two or three percent. I think we said three percent in the book. It's probably a little bit tighter than that. So
1: you always want to publish something that's a little bit more conservative than what it actually is. Exactly. So what what kind of observations have you made from doing all of that,
2: besides that churro cart Frontierland being the go-to place? You know, the, the interesting thing is that most people are pretty positive about um, both Disney food and Disney restaurants. I think the average restaurant, you know, thumbs up rating uh, is somewhere between 86 to 80, 88%. So most people would give the average disney restaurant a, a b plus like a solid b plus um on a grading scale and i kind of get, kind of get that i mean overall um you know disney does a really good job but uh, what's interesting then is we think it's plus or minus uh, 6 or 7 points i think it's 6 points is this it was the uh uh it was two standard deviations away so anything that's rated above a 94 or above or 82 or below would be places that you would say were really really good or really really bad And the interesting thing about the places that are really, really bad, Randy, is this. Most of them are the older places at Disney Springs. So like Portobello's, Bongo's, um, Paradiso 37, the established places, uh, Fulton's Crab House, um, did not do well in these surveys. And given all of the competition and all of the changes that are either at or coming to Disney Springs, I would not be surprised to see all of those restaurants either go away or undergo. Like really, really significant changes. In fact, uh, Fulton's just announced a couple of days ago that they were closing, laying off a couple hundred people, and essentially doing a revamp. And we've been saying for months that 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 was going to happen. I, I would be shocked if Bongo's didn't do the same thing, if Portabella didn't do the same thing within the next you know 60 or 90 days. So the interesting thing is from the from the survey results, you can see the tra- you can see what's going to happen, right? You can essentially see the writing on the wall. Um, we can generally detect when uh, new chefs move around without even being told because, you know, something will spike, uh, uh, survey responses will spike. So we know that you know somebody moved into flying fish or somebody moved out of California grill or into La Salle or something like that. It's really interesting.
1: Hmm, wow. Has there been anything that you've seen come to the parks or to Walt Disney World as a whole, maybe a restaurant or something that you thought based on an, kind of initial impressions, wow, this is going to do really well or this is going to do really badly. And then you got all of this survey data and saw things play out exactly the opposite of what
2: you thought was going to happen.
1: We weren't sure with Be Our Guest
2: whether it was going to be a gimmick or whether the food was going to be good. But once we got in there and ate it, we thought the food was going to be pretty good. The And the survey responses on that are, you know, like 90, 91% thumbs up. I'm a little surprised that it's actually that low I would think it would be a little bit higher but but that's pretty solid I think a lot of the um, some of that might have to do with price The thing that surprises me more not necessarily with our surveys but like with stuff you see like on TripAdvisor or Expedia is how much people integrate price into their review of things so we know based on our own surveys that whenever you ask anybody a survey question, they always put at the end of the question, for the money I paid, right? Was this meal good? Yes, comma, for the money I paid, right? Whenever you ask a survey question, implicit in, in the rating is what people paid for. Even if you tell them, you know, don't think about what you paid for. Just just evaluate the quality. People can't separate the two. So you look at things like on, on TripAdvisor where, you know, there's um, some of the moderate resorts are rated higher than, like you know, the Contemporary or Bay Lake Tower. Or, uh, many of the deluxe resorts. It's not that they're better resorts objectively. It's again, for the money I paid, I think this is a better value. That's, that's still sort of amazing to me.
1: Yeah, definitely. Do you ever get responses that include instead of for the money I paid for the time
2: I waited? Yeah. Uh, a lot of people do that. It, we get a lot of, uh, for the time I waited stuff related to buses. Mm. And this is a, this is super interesting. So, um, we, and I am 100% convinced this is true. We've broken this out by country. Uh, the more you're exposed to public transportation, the better you think Disney's transportation service is. If you're from uh, the UK, uh, specifically like London, or you're from Paris, or you're from Germany, any any country that has a subway system, or uh, you know, if you use the New York or Boston or Chicago um, subways on a regular basis. Um, you are much like much, much more likely to be satisfied with Disney's bus system than, let's say, you're from the Midwest where you never, you know, you drive your own car everywhere. Um, if you never use a, a public bus, you never use a public subway, you never use public transportation. You have nothing to go against for Disney. So waiting 20 minutes for a bus at Disney World um, seems like a long time to you versus just getting in your car and going. So people who uh, people who are not exposed to public transportation don't think it's that great. People who Use public transportation, think it's very good. That's that's also interesting. The funny thing is, is I've talked to people about Disney about that, and I think I don't know that they've ever looked at it that way, let's put it that way. Um, but like your satisfaction with the Disney transportation based on your exposure to, to other public transportation, that's an interesting way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, and it seems like that would be an obvious perspective because people are always going to – Rate things or estimate the value of things based on their own experience, so you all you really need to
2: if possible at least control for that when looking at your data the thing that the thing that we we didn't we didn't do that initially, and I don't think actually Disney did that for the longest time they um they were looking at things like the the amount of time it took between buses, and it used to be twenty minutes right twenty minutes was sort of like the guideline that the Disney people will give you, you know, another bus comes in about every twenty minutes. But in, and in reality, we've seen over the years that the time between buses is getting shorter and shorter. So last year when we measured it, it was down to 16 minutes. Um, so, a, you know, a new bus coming up every 16 minutes is actually very good for the size of the property and for the number of people that they have to get around. 16 minutes is very good. But, but the thing that we were asking ourselves was, and this is always important, as compared to what, right? Is 16 minutes good or bad? Well, what do you compare it to? Well, if you're, you know, if you're comparing it to a subway or uh, a public bus, yeah, sixteen min- minutes is in bad. But what if you're from like Oklahoma and you never use a bus and there are no subways? Is sixteen minutes good or bad? Well, they probably think it's bad because it's sixteen minutes. And that was that was interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So we've talked a lot about all of these
1: tools and how they're used in theme parks and the. The Walt Disney World Resort as a whole, and uh, even other tourist attractions, but do these tools that you've developed for TouringPlans.com have any uses outside of planning and experiencing a Disney vacation?
2: <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. Um, I, uh, I, w- I was joking with uh, with Laurel that uh, you know everyone needs a hobby outside of work, um, and mine is curing diabetes. So it's it's true. <laughs> it's kind of funny. So about a year ago, um, I got an email from a guy. Uh, a, a doctor named name is Brad Brad Eilerman in um, in Cincinnati, and he said he's a he's an endocrinologist and he treats patients with diabetes. And he said this thing that you've developed for the touring plans, can you use it to make recommendations for for medicine uh, for treatment for diabetes? In other words, I've got all of these medicines I could prescri- prescribe to this patient with diabetes, you know, of these 50 or 60 medicines that I could prescribe, you know, what are the, you know, one, two, three, four or five best? Um, so we looked at it and it's uh, it's actually the exact same kind of problem, not not like the touring plant software, but like the software that we do for, um, for the least expensive ticket calculator where you're trying to match the best set of tickets to an individual. So it's exactly the same kind of problem. So I took a couple of weekends and sort of prototyped some stuff out. Um, and we, we've been going back and forth for a year on it, but we're at the point now where we've got a—we uh, think we can do it. So we've got software that we built that says, you know, if your blood sugar level is this and your body mass index is this, and you're already on this medication, and this is what it's doing for you. You've got these sort of comorbidity factors, and uh, you know, a bunch of other stuff. Essentially, taking in all the patient data, based on that, here are the the drugs that we think would work best for you um and we got we actually submitted a paper to a uh, to an endocrinology conference uh that's in Orlando happens to be in Orlando in May uh we'll, and we should know in a couple of weeks whether it gets it gets uh it gets accepted or not but I'm I'm pretty confident in it but the interesting thing is this it's exactly like the uh the least expensive ticket calculator if you're a doctor right and you've got a patient in front of you that has uh diabetes you can pick uh up from uh you know any anything from like one to five drugs out of a range of fifty or sixty that might work to treat the diabetes. But as a doctor, you probably only are familiar with three or four really well drugs, the things that you use over and over again. Metformin is one, um is another one, uh a is another I think your listeners might be familiar with some of these. You know, but but as a human being, right, you cannot keep the uh, efficacy and the side effects of 50 or 60 drugs in your head all day, every day, no one can do it. Right. Right. But you can And for a computer, it's really nothing to go through and say, you know, give me every combination from one to five drugs out of this 50 or 60, evaluate it against this patient data and come up with some suggestions. Um, so that's what we did. And it's a, uh, you know, it's a fairly straightforward problem As we, we've done some interesting tests. We were, we haven't actually tested on people cause you can't do that. But we've we've compared it to um, a set of 200 patients and what their primary care physicians actually prescribed them versus what we would have prescribed them and uh, and there's some standard sort of flow charts for doing this sort of thing and uh, but we think we we think it, it could end up saving a significant amount of money and have um, better side effects for a lot of people so for example um, I mentioned the side effects a lot of the drugs that you get for diabetes um, have a weight loss component. If you if you take them, you will either gain weight or lose weight. Um, so as a side effect, if you if you happen to be a little bit overweight, you could take, uh, you would prefer to take a drug that lets you lose a little bit of weight because over time that would actually help control your symptoms a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but as a doctor, again, it's hard to keep all of these side effects in mind because not only do you have to, you have to figure out like, you know, what is this going to do to the patient's blood sugar level but, you know, uh, is there anything in their, medical history that would prevent me from prescribing this. And then you have to, then, you know, maybe, then maybe the the secondary side effects would, would kick in and you would think about that. But again, you can only do that for like three or four things Your computer could do it for literally all of them at once. Um, and so the side effect thing is actually where we see, uh, the computer being able to do a better job than some primary care physicians by, by keeping all the side effects, uh, in memory versus, you know, person doing it. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, so the, we've got a paper coming out. Hopefully it gets accepted. We'll have it out in May. It'll be an interesting sort of thing. But again, it's all based on the least expensive ticket calculator, which I, which I think is really kind of funny, right? So yeah. we'll see what <laughs> happens.
1: Yeah. Has that started the wheels turning a little bit about? I wonder if any of these other things we've done might have some application beyond what we're using it for yeah, they're
2: all i mean they're all basic operations research problems right so the least expensive ticket calculator the diabetes thing is, is what's called a knapsack problem um and in fact i, I used the exact same framework of the code to, to solve it um both times so you know getting it getting it up and running was uh actually you know my part of it wasn't that difficult brad uh the the guy that was the the doctor it was the one who actually had to come up with all the rules uh you know for it you know like you know Give it five points but if it does this. Take away three points if it if it doesn't do that. Stuff like that. That was on, on his end. He's it he was the bulk of the work. Um, you know, from my perspective, it was relatively straightforward coding. Hmm. But uh, but yeah, I mean they're all they're all basic operations research problems. It's nice to see that they're they're you know applicable in lots of places. So, again, we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, Thanks. and hopefully you know if that gets published and goes on to help as many people in the ways that you described. Just
2: yeah, so we're hoping it does. Yeah, so there's like uh, 40 million Americans, I think, with diabetes. So uh, that's that's a lot of people. That's a lot of potential. The uh, yeah. it's funny though, because so you know, I really like working with Brad. And the the thing that I like is we both looked at it the, with the exact same set of priorities. That the and, and we came up with three, and we all agreed on the three. And the three were this: one, can we actually write something that would work? Right? Is this is this even possible to do with a computer? Two, can it help people? Right? Would would does it work? Does, you know? Can we produce a result? Do people follow it? And do we help people? And then way down on the list at number three was like, can we make any money of this? But it's funny because we, we both had the, the same set of priorities. It's like can it work? Can it help people? Those were our big two. And then later on I was like, oh, this might be an, an interesting business to get into too. But uh, yeah, so it worked out really well. I'm very happy with it.
1: Very cool. Congratulations on that. Whether it Whatever else happens to us, congratulations yeah, just, on what you've done so far. Yeah, just to
2: get to this point, I think is uh, it's super interesting. So We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, definitely.
1: I want to ask a couple of questions to kind of wrap up, and then we'll come back and revisit another time, because I am a big nerd, and I love getting into the details of these things.
2: <laughs> All right, good, good. Yeah. So, I'd, I'd
1: love to come back on. Great, great. Uh, so I usually have about f- a few questions to wrap up. I'm going to ask one of them now and save the others to get people to come back for when we do this another time. So then what I'm going to ask right now is what
2: inspires you? You know, it, it sounds corny, but uh, but it goes back to the thing that we you know, we just talked about. It's, you know, number one, can we can we make people's lives easier? That's the uh, um, that's the big thing. And you know, being able to use math and science to do that is is a good feeling for me. The, I get a, an immense amount of satisfaction from uh, creating tools that help people and that lots of people use. That that's kind of what, what gets me up in the morning.
1: Nice. And for people who say, "Oh, I don't need math and science because I'm not going to do anything with that," well, you might be surprised what kind of applications it has, right? Yeah.
2: There's um. So in a perfect world, you don't even know that the math and science is happening, right? If we've if we've developed the app right, you know, you push buttons and it gives you suggestions and you do it. It's sort of like a GPS, right? Lots of math and science are going on behind the scenes, but you don't have to know much of it for it to happen. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think. I tend to view life as a series of a set of probabilities, you know, things that might happen. Um, so if you know those sorts of things or you can do educated guesses, it tends to help out. Right.
1: Yeah, and the more you know, the better you're you know, educated your guesses are. It's true. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you a chance here for shameless plug time now. Everybody's <laughs> favorite part of the show. This is what you sat through the last hour or so for is to get the chance to do this. Uh, this is anything that you want to mention or promote, uh, podcast, podcast. Twitter, touring plans, whatever you want to tell people right. about, right. go for profile. it. Uh, <laughs>
2: right. Uh, so I'm Testa. My website is uh, touringplans.com and the book is The Unofficial Guide to Walk This Town World.
1: Cool. And I'll put links to those in the show notes and I'll also go ahead and put links to the thing I mentioned in the intro, the uh, Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. That's always in my
2: podcast rotation. Which is a series of uh, live ones and they're starting to come out at the Animal Kingdom one we just released. But... Uh... We did each of the parks, Disney Springs, and then we did uh, the Holy Land experience, which was way better than I thought it was going to be. I was really, I was really happy to, uh, to have gone. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was good.
1: Good. I know I really enjoyed the Disneyland ones you guys have been doing. Oh, um, you know, since that's kind of my stomping grounds and to, to be as humble as I can be and as modest as I can be about this, I know quite a bit about Disneyland and the history and so on. So it's nice to be able to hear some of these stories and you know connect some dots and learn some things that I didn't already know.
2: Oh, fantastic.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time and uh, for agreeing to come back and do this another time. And for all of the work that you and your team have put in and continue to put in on unofficial guide stuff and the touring plans app and website and the however many millions of people that it helps uh, have a better vacation.
2: I really appreciate it. Thank you, Randy.
1: That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Len Testa for being my guest and to you for listening. This interview was a little different than most in that it's a single episode. I still had more questions that we didn't get to, though, so if you want to hear more from Len, let me know and we'll schedule a follow up. Now, because this was a little bit longer of an episode than usual, we're going to skip the usual promos and requests and things like that. I will say that if you've got any stories that you'd like to share, and especially maybe if you've used the Touring Plans or the Optimizer or anything like that that Touring Plans provides, you know, the kind of things that Lynn has worked on, I would love for you to call in and share your experience and give a thank you to Lynn and the Touring Plans team. Be a little different than what I usually ask for, but I think that would be really appreciated. If you want to do that, email me at podcast at podcaststoriesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734 23 Story and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review it in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, wherever else you can. If you've got any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com. You can leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, you can check out links from this episode, like the, some of the longer interviews where Lynn talks more about his graduate project, and uh, the links that I usually provide here for social media. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days, and other stories,
0: but this tale is finished. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com. Or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com, for show notes from this and every episode, and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.